Welcome to the NABC Guardians of the Game podcast, where we go inside what makes a coach a coach. The Guardians of the Game podcast is a production of the National Association of Basketball Coaches and Learfield IMG College, brought to you by Wilson Sporting Goods. And now, here's your host, Dave Odom. Welcome back to another edition of the NABC Guardians of the Game podcast. Today's guest is one of the great young head coaches in America today. He's the head coach of the Washington Huskies, Mike Hopkins. Mike, welcome, and thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you, Coach. Really appreciate being on here today. Well, you, uh, you are an interesting study. Uh, I, I've been looking at your uh, resume uh, off and on for the last couple of days. Uh, you're, a, uh, you're a young player who grew up in Southern California. You migrated all the way to the East Coast in Syracuse, where you actually spent 30 years. Uh, you know, I think that's an interesting thing. Um, you know, recruiting doesn't necessarily start in, uh, in high school uh, and in college. I mean, it, it, it goes on sometimes before that. And you played for the great uh, Gary McKnight, who's still the head coach at Modern Day High School in Southern California. Uh, were you recruited to go there? How did that work? That was one of the great programs, still is, in the country today. I know you learned a lot there both on and off the court. Yeah, Coach, it was interesting because I, was, I loved Little League baseball and I loved soccer. And uh, basketball was, you know, you're in the 6th, 7th, 8th grade and you're playing. And um, I had a friend named Chris Patton. And Chris Patton at one time, he was a freshman at Modern Day who was at the time a powerhouse. And he was rated the number one freshman in the country. You know, one of those uh, hoop scoop way back, way, way back. I don't know how they saw everybody, but it was this kid who was going to be a freshman and playing varsity at this, uh, at this powerhouse. And he was a really close friend. And he kind of sparked my interest in being a basketball player. And we, we had played in his backyard, and he was really mature and really big and physical. And he beat me 50 to 1. Oh. And it was one of those things where it was like, okay, you know, your best friend hits you or you're good. And it was like, I'm going to be good at this sport. And that really sparked the love of basketball. And then I wanted to follow Chris. So I wasn't recruited by any stretch of the imagination. It was just one of those things when you get inspired by something or something happens in your life, you want to be great. And so John Wooden basketball camp, fundamental in the garage, fingertip control, the whole nine yards. And uh, I, I decided to go to modern day and play for, you know, one of the great coaching legends of the game. Now, so you really were not recruited to go to modern day. That, that was just your uh, uh, school of choice. I wanted to play the best. And, you know, I played, you know, I'm Laguna Hills, California, you know, uh, you know, sports just in general, some of the local high schools, it wasn't, you know, uh, you know, going to push you to the levels that I wanted to be pushed and, and how good I wanted to become. And, you wanted to go to the best, and I did, and um, it was just one of the greatest decisions I know of me and my family that I've ever made. Coach McKnight uh, was more than a basketball coach. He was uh, a mentor. He uh, taught you things off the court, how to act, um, you know, speak, be proper, nice. Uh, tell us about him as a mentor to you. He, you know what? He was, uh, you know, early in my career, he was a father figure. He was somebody that was – you know, always pushing your limits uh, to make you better. Uh, and he was tough. I mean, he was, I would say, close to the Coach Knight uh, 
uh, Bobby Knight uh, in, in high school. And but you know he loved you always and, and pushed you. And I'll always, you know, uh, you know, you always have your ups and downs with where you went, your coaches and this and that. But at the end of the day, in retrospect, uh, I learned, you know, how to manage people. I learned how to push people to become great, and I also learned how to build a strong culture. Because at modern day, it was like, you know, the, the culture was exclusive. It wasn't inclusive. And uh, you either bought in or you weren't going to play there. <laughs> so it was uh, it was great in all areas, but, uh, you know, one of the great coaches of all time. Well, uh, you, you were not a great scorer. I say that with uh, a great deal of uh, respect for you. Yeah. Uh, but you were on the team. You were an important uh, member of the team. You helped them. Uh, get to the national level from a high school standpoint. But, boy, you had a lot of help. I mean, you had some really good players who went on and played at a very high level. Give us some names there that uh, our listeners might recognize and, you know, kind of how the thing developed from a championship standpoint. Well, it's funny. When I went there, obviously my buddy Chris Patton, and we had, they had a kid named Tommy Lewis at the time. And he would, Tommy was a top ten player in the United States, a guy that all young guys looked up to. Uh, there was also a point guard on that team when I was a freshman on varsity named Tom Peabody. And the people remember him. He played at Loyola Marymount when they had Hank and Bo, and they called him the human bruise because uh, of the way he just competed and he was on the floor taking charges. And I kind of took on that role as I as I progressed. And then later, uh, when I played on varsity, I played uh, with one of the great players in high school was LaRon Ellis. Um, played in the NBA, uh, went originally uh, to Kentucky out of high school, but he was uh, the number one high school center in the country. And when you play at a school like a, a modern day, you have there's so many good players from all different levels that, you know, I was lucky enough that, you know, when every school in America would come in there to recruit. And so my dream school was Syracuse at the time. Gary uh, knew I loved it, and he would just every time Coach Bayheim and Bernie Fine and Coach Morgan would come in, it was like we got this kid. Now I'm telling you, you know he's a late bloomer. He can really shoot it, and he he's begging to go there. And you know it ended up you know being a great situation for me and getting lucky enough to get a scholarship to Syracuse. I was going to ask you that. I mean, you're a long way from Syracuse. Uh, you know there had to be other schools much closer to where you uh, were there in Southern California, and yet you ended up in uh, the East Coast, Syracuse, Jim Beheim, and as you mentioned, Bernie Fine and Wayne Morgan and these other coaches that, that came through. Uh, tell us about uh, why Syracuse, and I mean, that had to be a little bit pulling at your heartstrings. You're leaving Southern California. You're going to one of the most, uh, shall we say, uh, notorious schools in the country, and Gosh, it just it worked out for you. You know, for me, uh, that seventh and eighth grade years when I started loving basketball and I had that friend Chris Patton who was going to go to modern day, I went through that. That was the time where you would get out of school at 3 o'clock. And uh, if you watched college basketball at 4 o'clock, you were watching ESPN. And so, you know, the 7 o'clock big Monday game, uh, Syracuse versus Georgetown was – the game that I grew up on. It wasn't any of the Pac-12 games, you know, KTLA, Channel 5. It was basically a local broadcast. And I'm watching these games and watching Pearl Washington and Patrick Ewing and uh, watching the halftime specials. On, uh, I remember uh, Walter Berry halftime special in Brooklyn, New York. And 
Dick, Dick Vitale doing the games and 30,000 fans and all these big markets. And I was just, I just fell in love with that. And, um, it was like going to modern day. I wanted to play against the best and reach my potential. And so my dream was watching, you know, I, I, I dreamt as crazy as it was. And this is the great thing about dreams is I, I watched Pearl Washington and I would be in, uh, you know, the most suburban place in the United States acting like I was Pearl Washington playing against Georgetown, uh, and on a little circle concrete court. <laughs> um, and, uh, I was just lucky enough to have an opportunity to make my dream come true. And so really blessed, lucky, but uh, it was, you know, to say you're going to go from Southern California, one of the most beautiful places in the world, all the way across country to the, <laughs> to the, to, I don't even know what you call the frozen tundra. Uh, it was a big uh, culture change, uh, but it was, it was just incredible experience for me. Well, uh, you know, coach Beheim obviously has always been one of the great coaches in uh, America still is uh, today. His style is different. Did that factor into you going to Syracuse? That is the zone defense, and uh, or was it more you weren't worried about the zone defense? You were more concerned about how his his uh, program operated and uh, his uh, his willingness to let shooters shoot the ball. And I think he's always had you know a Jerry Mc, uh, McNamara and, and guys yeah. like yourselves. Yeah, there was another guy who was a good friend of mine, uh, Matt Rowe, had played. He had transferred later. But, you know, the coach really – I think, you know, coach was a walk-on originally at Syracuse, and he was just so tough and could shoot it. But he was a late bloomer too. And um, I think for me it was kind of like uh, – my thing was it was more I was recruiting them to take me. You know, it wasn't yeah. the other way around. And I was fortunate enough to get an opportunity and they brought me in and it was more so, you know, how am I going to find a way to get on the court and, uh, fought, uh, you know, scratch clawed, uh, did whatever I could. I redshirted. It took me three years to even get a sniff. And then, um, you know, I just found a way to, to get on that court. And I, I think at one point, you know, coach saw a lot of, uh, me, a lot of him and me, um, he was obviously probably a lot better than I was coming out of high school, but it was all about the fight and that toughness and trying to make a, uh, a team better. And, um, I was just really, really lucky. You mentioned LaRon Ellis, uh, a player that I know well, uh, back from uh, my days at Wake Forest. Uh, as I remember, he, he went to Kentucky, stayed a couple of years and somebody recruited him out of Kentucky to go to Syracuse. No question. And uh, <laughs> we were roommates and uh, played together. And Syracuse was one of his schools at the, at the end. It was, I think it was Kentucky, UCLA, uh, you know, all the schools, Syracuse. And, you know, when he decided to transfer, obviously, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, they reached out to uh, Syracuse and then us being there and uh, having that relationship previously with the coaching staff was huge. And he just felt at home and, you know, had a great career at the Cuse. Um, Jim Beheim is known uh, far and wide as uh, perhaps the preeminent uh, teacher of the zone uh, in college basketball. Um, I know that uh, Mike Krzyzewski had him as his assistant for uh, I don't know how many years as part of the USA team. And uh, I saw some of the practices, and I actually was part of the staff a couple of years there, um, where, uh, you know, Jim 
when it came time to teach the zone, uh, you know, Jim kind of jumped to the fore and he was the guy that uh, uh, put it in. Um, what makes his approach to zone defense different than others? And is that something you've kind of leaned on in your first two years there as head coach at UW? You know what, Coach? It's a great question because I was really fortunate. When you, when you can be at a place for so long, you know, you can see uh, the adaptation. You can see how it started. You can see how it evolved. And the greatest thing with Coach, uh, there's so many great things that he does as a coach, but the greatest thing is he's always evolving. And I think that's why he's been able to do it for so many years on the recruiting front, the coaching front. And so when you would see the zone, you know, every coach, there's so many good coaches out there, you'll see an attack that hurts you, right? And then once a coach sees an attack that hurts you, everybody who's scouting those games is now going to try to implement that attack. Well, coach would change just how we defended. And it was interesting because the zone is very simple in a lot of ways, but it's also very intricate. And it's also you can make adjustments uh, and take things away. And I was able to see that throughout the years, especially when people try to overload the corners. And, you know, we call it the inside screen, overload the corners. And, we, you know, change the way that we bumped on the forward and taking different angles. Uh, uh, are you going to play the high post or not play the high post? There's so many, are we going to trap or not trap? And it was just, you could just see him evolving. Like he was like the mad scientist, you know? And, and it just it just kept getting better and better. But it was all based on evolution, based on how we were getting attacked. And so, um, you know, I was obviously just now everybody wants to play zone. And, I've you know, I've learned from the best. And so it's been a, a huge help in terms of our short success here in the, in the meantime. You know, it's really helped us. One of the things that I, I look at when I look at uh, uh, Jim's uh, zone is the length on the perimeter. I mean, he's got great length there. I mean, they, they rarely would have a, let's say, a 5'11 guard playing out front there. And, and the length that he has been able to utilize uh, at the two guard and the two forward positions, I mean, really has been key to me because if you get that ball down on the baseline, I mean, there's an automatic double team coming, and they're not coming with small people. I mean, these are guys with arm lengths of – you know, six eight, six nine, somewhere along in there. Oh yeah, you know it's it's funny because through that adaptation period, being with coach for so many years, uh, we had a team last year that had you know we were six three in the back, and a lot of times six seven at the center, um, and we had a six one guard, and so we had to adapt on how it could be effective for us, and uh, you know, and that's when you know in all those meetings and trying to figure out how we could make it better. Uh, it's uh, it's that's that's it's been a huge advantage, and now now this year's team we have those we have a kid that's six nine with a seven five wingspan, and we've got six eleven. We, we could go six ten, six eleven, and seven feet along the front line this year, which poses a lot of different type of challenges for our opponents. Um, but that length is huge when it comes to any type of defense, but especially the zone. All right, so you uh, successful there at Syracuse, you. Uh, did the interim uh, deal there with him when Coach Payham was out those few games. Um, you, you gained the reputation of, of being a quality young coach. Uh, the University of Washington came calling in 2017. Uh, you, you 
went, you packed your bags, you went back out to the, uh, the West Coast, and uh, here you are with the Huskies right now. Uh, you, you Coach of the year, you've been uh, regular season champs in 2019. You've got another good team coming back. Talk to us about the difference between East Coast basketball, West Coast basketball at the college level. Well, it was interesting. I was really, really lucky to play in the Big East, uh, that original uh, Big East, and then coaching the the end of the Big East and some of the changes, and obviously in the ACC as an assistant. So it's, uh, you know, obviously uh, when you you talk about the ACC now, there's uh, how many, four or five Hall of Fame coaches at the time they're in the Hall of Fame. I think they all think Um, they're Hall of Fame, but anyway. They think they're Hall of Fame, but they've all, they've been in Coach (laughs) Beheim. Coach Williams, Coach Krzyzewski, uh a couple years ago, Coach Patino. So there was, you know, it goes back to that, and there's so many high-quality programs. But the one thing that I've – it's been a lot of fun is to see, I think, our league. You know, I think Dana Altman is one of the best coaches in the game. Uh, Larry Kristowiak, I mean, Tad Boyle. I think there's so many really good coaches in our league. And I think what you do see in the East Coast is you see a lot more media attention, and I see – a lot of uh, teams, you know, playing on television, getting a lot of exposure. I think those things are huge keys. Um, so I think we do take a knock. Um, but at the end of the day, Coach, you know this. Uh, you've won a lot of games. And uh, it's go- it goes back to so much now is based on your league is what you do in November. And it's uh, and so those are the challenges. But I, I love our league. Um, I think the league's getting better. Sean Miller, obviously, they had their issues, but is a heck of a coach in Arizona. When they're good, our league gets a lot of publicity. UCLA with Nick Cronin uh, this year is a great coach. Uh, so it's going to be a lot of fun. And I, I hate to say it, but now being on the West Coast, I'm a I'm a Pac-12 homer, right? It's like you know you're fighting for that league. You know, uh, you know Gonzaga basketball is is incredible. They they compete uh, in that national championship caliber, and so I just want to represent uh, here and. And I brought a lot of those East Coast concepts. I brought the zone. Um, I brought a, a physical style of play uh, with the East Coast mentality, and uh, and and then you know building that culture of toughness and togetherness. And, uh, and so I think there's not really a difference. It just goes back to style of coaches. And so I go back to spending time with Coach Beham, obviously as a mentor, and then Coach K a little bit with the the USA, and bringing all those concepts and mindset and culture to the West Coast and. Uh, it's worked so far, and hopefully we can sustain it over time. Well, you just mentioned something I was going to bring up next, and that was uh, your involvement uh, as a court coach uh, with the USA team uh, in 98, uh, the year 2000, 01, 10, and 12. Man, that had to be one of the highlights of your coaching career, even though you weren't the head coach. I mean, you were just around such greatness. That is greatness in players – and greatness as coaches, and you had to have had a chance to learn a lot from an organizational standpoint. Coach, it was it was just I can't explain it. I was lucky enough uh, to do it, you know, 10, 12, 14, 16, and, uh, you know, being around the best and uh, seeing uh, a group of the best players play as a team watching a culture being developed by Coach K and Jerry Colangelo was just, you know, the art form of putting that together and watching that on a day-to-day basis. I would write notes every day 
you'd go into the meetings and I would come out and I would just, it was like a, a information drop. I, I still reference them a lot, how decisions were being made, uh, how teams are put together, especially with elite talent, uh, the communication uh, and the culture. And, um, you know, it's, it's interesting. And, uh, you know, as a, as a head coach now only for two years, but really studying and being a student of the game is, you know, you come in and you put in your offensive system, you put in your defensive system. But the greatest thing that I learned about at USA Basketball was how do you implement a culture system? And I think the culture part of it is just as important as offense and defense and maybe even more. And so having that experience and being around the best of the best from decision-making to strategy to team building, it was just like – it was – just the greatest time of my life. Let's talk about some off the court issues that uh, swirling around college basketball uh, right now. I mean, uh, you've got this name and likeness issue and you're, you're almost on top of it. Uh, You're not in the state of California, but you're darn close. And uh, you know, you're hearing all this uh, about players need to be paid uh, or have the ability to be paid uh, for their name and their likeness. Um, wh- where does Mike Hopkins stand on this as much as you can, you can tell us? You know what, Coach? Uh, it's a great question. Uh, it's obviously going around. I haven't really studied it enough to really talk, uh, talk about it, but I will tell you this. is I think you know, the more that I'm learning about it, and I think it's, it's you know, more people, especially student-athletes, need to be educated in it. I think when they talk about likeness, I'm assuming it's like the Olympic model, where if you watch those Milky Way commercials or Snickers, it's, you know, the gymnast or whatnot, and that helps pay for their training. Uh, but it's, it's interesting that I, I do think that the, with the NCAA stance yesterday coming out, talking about pain players and coming up with a, a strategy, uh, I think is obviously important. But I think a lot of these kids think that everybody's going to get paid, you know, like, they're going to get part of ticket sales and all this stuff, which that doesn't really mean likeness. And so I just think the more that we can not only educate, you know, the student athletes that will be involved in this case, um, just on what the likeness actually means. It's not ticket sales. <laughs> it might only be for the chosen few. Hmm. So, uh, you know, I, um, from a coaching standpoint, I mean, can you see some problems that could uh, rear its head. I mean, I, I don't know. I just make up something. I, let's say uh, you're sitting at your desk one day, and uh, uh, a car dealer uh, walks in and says, uh, "I need your best player uh, tomorrow at three o'clock. Uh, can you move your practice to four o'clock?" <laughs> I mean, is that is that something that could happen, or is that am I crazy? I, I think I, I think it's more so. The more the potential problem would be. Booster A at this school, uh, Booster B at this school, and those guys get into a bidding war to try to get the kid to go to their school. So they're getting actually like, you know, all these schools have alumni that are that are involved with big business. Oh boy. So I think I, I do believe in in uh, players getting financial compensation. There's no getting around it. But now I think there has to be a systematic approach, and that's going to be the most challenging part for the NCAA. It's great that they're talking about it, you know, like it's, it should happen. There should be evolution. But how we do it is now going to be the biggest issue and the biggest challenge. Mike, you've been big uh, with coaches versus cancer. I, I assume that um, 
you, you learned a lot from Coach Beheim with that. He and his wife, Julie, maybe uh, the most aggressive peop, uh, uh, husband and wife coach in the country as it relates to coaches versus cancer. Um, tell us about your involvement with it and why, why you're so strong with it. Well, you know, Coach Beheim, I learned a lot. He gave a lot to a lot of people. And he was always uh, just very passionate about it. And, uh, you know, it, it, just to be able to give back. I think, you know, everybody has certain, uh, you know, when I say, you know, you go through maybe your, your father has cancer, or you go through it with a loved one you lost, you, you fight for those causes. And so I was able to see that and be a part of it and see the impact for all the coaches that I've been around. So, you know, just the, the philanthropy and giving back and trying to make a difference in the world and using your per se likeness uh, with Coach Beheim's success to really make a positive impact uh, is just incredible. And coaches versus cancer is obviously they do so much for so many people and they're, you know, they're, they're trying to cure this, this cancer thing. So uh, anytime that you can help the world with, with your position, I think it's, 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 it's what we should do. You know, it's, it's, it's all about that. And coach is incredible with it. And finally, um, you, you mentioned Gary McKnight as an early influence on your life. You mentioned Jim Beheim as being equally important at a later, later time in your life. So the idea of mentorship and giving back to the game of basketball uh, has been very, very important to you. Uh, you've been through the USA team experience, and you've had other great coaches come through, uh, Mike Krzyzewski and others, uh, that helped you there. How important is it that we who are older and have experienced uh, uh, a modicum of success, give back to younger coaches to help guide them so that they can uh, take the game the way we hand it to them and then have it uh, progress even more. Uh, I, I sometimes worry that we older coaches don't do as good a job maybe as we should be doing in developing some of these young coaches. So how, how do we do that? And, and, and if you can, uh, Mike, if you could – uh, kind of weave in the role that you see the NABC have with the NCAA? Well, I think, I, you know what, I really believe, you know, when it, being a part of the USA basketball, it was funny what Coach Thibodeau used to always say, you know, the next great coaches have obviously at one time worked for great coaches. And so you learn so much about, you know, uh, about the game by, the culture that you're in and the situation you're in. And it goes back to me learning so much about coach Bayham, one of the greatest coaches of all time. I can go back and reference Gary McKnight, one of the greatest high school coaches of all time. I can go back and you know my experience with USA basketball and coach Krzyzewski and going one of the greatest coaches of all time. And I think, you know, I was lucky to have those opportunities. I think young coaches, you talk about, you know, older coaches like yourself, guys who've had so much success, what can you do? I think it's what the younger coaches can do and reach out to coaches like yourself who have so much experience and so much knowledge. I think so much today is like, you know, wanting and being willing to go out and learn. You know, I, now with the internet, I can go watch coaching clinics on YouTube. I can, uh, you know, call, you know, if I wanted to call you, I call you coach. What do you think about scheduling? What can you talk about this? I can go back and, 
go to a Villanova practice and, and watch Jay Wright uh, and, and you know, coach, how did you build this and your offense and you know, going out and watching a, a a practice. I think those are the things that young coaches don't do as much anymore. Um, and so, where where do young coaches learn? You know, so when I sit there and I look at like you say, what's the future of the game? Back in the game, when you were doing it, you had five-star. So a lot of coaches would go and coach five-star, and you're learning from Rick Pitino and Mike Fratello and uh, Hubie Brown, and you're learning player development. You're watching how they're interacting with, 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 with you know, players. Uh, you're learning strategy. You're learning fundamentals. And so I look back and go, I was lucky to play for those people. And then obviously learn and coach on those staffs in some capacity. Um, but I had a mentor that I haven't talked about named Tim Gergerich, uh, who, when I was starting to get into coaching, I had reached out to him because I wanted to learn. And next thing you know, I'm in Seattle with the Supersonics during the playoff run, and he's got me on the court, and I'm watching how he's interacting with players and how he's pushing them and how he's coaching and watching how he studies. And so I don't know, you know, what system, um, you know, can be put in place for the, for, you know, an NABC perspective, but there needs to be access to be able to go out and learn from the best. Because I know it's like anything, coach, if, if five coaches called you tomorrow, right, and just say, hey, coach, listen, do you have, uh, I'm going to come up and I want to spend time with you for an hour. What are you going to say? I'm going to do it. You're going to do it because you're a teacher. Every, I think people get afraid of calling. But, like, you've got to be aggressive because it's, I think that's on the young coaches, in my opinion. I don't think there's a systematic approach right now to where we can get exposed, you know, to, 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 to having the, the chance to, to go to those places and learn from the best and have intimate conversations and have questions answered. And so, you know, I was very bullish on that when I first got into coaching. I was almost the annoying coach, you know. Like, I just wanted to learn. and uh, And so – uh, that's where mentorship comes in play in every area of, I think, every successful person. If that's business, if that's basketball, you know, reach out to these these people, these greats. Great coaches are great teachers, and they want to help, and they want guys to develop. And being a mentor is an, an incredible, uh, you know, it's an incredible give back. It's an incredible feeling uh, when you impact a young coach's life. I know. I guarantee you when Coach Beheim, you know, watches our games, he's proud. I know when Coach K watches games, he's proud of what we're doing. They're proud of all the coaches that have worked underneath him. And, you know, for any young coach out there, I'd reach out, go to practices, uh, learn as much as you can, learn about culture, learn about offense, learn about defense. And, um, you know, that's just my perspective. Well said and well said from the heart. And I appreciate that, Mike. And I want to thank everyone for tuning in to the NABC Guardians of the Game podcast and to Coach Mike Hopkins, uh, a great young coach. Uh, he's, he's going to be around for a long time, won a lot of championships. It's going to be fun to watch him because he's a great person as well. So I want to thank him for being taking out a good portion of his day uh, uh, to be with us. Good luck to your Huskies this year. We'll be following me from afar. And for those that were listening and want to know more about the NABC, they need only to visit nabc.com.